millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars pod. You may have noticed if you follow me on Twitter that every once in a while, I do like to set the Twitter sphere aflame. It's not because of some grudge match with Elon Musk. Let's be honest, he couldn't give a monkey's what I've got to say. I don't pay for the blue tick. Nonetheless, I do find it quite amusing to just poke a few questions out occasionally and watch you guys tear each other apart in a nice way. Not in a horrible sort of bloody kind of way, in a nice sort of loving Actually, it's Twitter. There's no such thing as loving on Twitter, is there? Anyway, let us move swiftly on. One of those questions that I put out very recently was, what is the biggest what if of the Napoleonic era? And predictably, it went a bit mental with some brilliant theories, some also less than brilliant theories that didn't entirely work out. But it made me realize we need to convene. We need to bring together some of these brilliant suggestions and have a little bit of a think because I think uh, so. Josh Proven will be in part two of this one, so there's going to be two parts to this. I'm going to have six contributors in all. Um, Josh does make the point that sometimes he really doesn't like counterfactual history because sometimes it can be a little bit pointless. Now, that's not to cast an aspersion at what my guests are about to. Um, pitch to you but sometimes it's sort of going to be sometimes people sort of turn around and go well, well what if i don't know waterloo was actually fought in the sahara or something sometimes you get really sort of silly questions that that don't work whereas actually at its best what if history really deepens your appreciation of just how easily things can kind of swing on a knife edge just how easy it is for history to take a very different course of events and the role that chance can play in what actually unfolded. So tonight, we're going to hear from three very lovely, very knowledgeable individuals who are going to blow you away with some of these suggestions. The six that I picked were all absolute belters. I am joined by Candice Proctor, She's a former history lecturer. She describes herself as a recovering historian, which is quite a good um, adjective. I, I quite like that one. She's an expert and former lecturer in the French Revolution and 19th century Europe, but now is the author of the Sebastian Sancier novels, including the most recent one, Who Cries Last. I also have in the house Graham Callister, a regular. Can we describe you as a regular yet on this show? 
let's let's go with it why not um nobody's gonna start counting and, and really care too much about the specifics are they um graham as you will know from um, his recent appearances on the show is a senior lecturer at york st john he wrote the important i'm going to say it's important there you go um, not that anybody cares what I've got to say about that, but it was important. War, Public Opinion and Policy in Britain, France and the Netherlands, 1785 to 1815. People, bear in mind, Palgrave Macmillan are doing periodic like 33% off sales. So keep an eye out and bag yourself a bargain um, and, and a fascinating read in the process because it's well worth buying. Um, he's also co-author of the best-selling, even if it was only for sort of a couple of days on Amazon. I'm calling it best-selling and we're sticking with it. The best-selling battle, understanding conflict from Hastings to Helmand. Uh, so welcome, Graham. And last but by no means least, we have Charles McKay. Now, you might hear that name and not know quite who I'm referring to. So let me put it to you this way. Bubbles the Vampire as he's known on Twitter. Uh, he's a former history professor, uh, now works in other industries, an expert on Juno, um, which means that really we should have had a chat when I did Juno with Josh during the Peninsula War episodes. Very sorry about that. We may rectify that in the again. future. He shows exactly. up again, so it's all good. This is true. Um, but yeah, welcome all of you. Great to see you. Thank you. Welcome, because actually many of you are newbies. Two of you are. How are you all doing? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, very well. Thanks, Zach. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm well. Thank you for caring. You know, this is this is a a level of of um well care, I guess, that I'm not used to on this show. Normally, the guests are just like, yeah, I'm fine. Let's move on. Can we get on with it? You know, I want to go go and get dinner. It's it's I've got a busy life. Don't want to waste time on this podcasting nonsense. Um, but <laughs> I, I guess in fairness tonight, we're going to sit here and chew the fat. the 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 concept for this one is a bit different. Normally, I sort of at the end of each pitch ask deeply peevish questions, and I also endeavour to keep my guests to a strict time. It's not a strict time limit. Who am I kidding? But nonetheless, I try and impose a time limit. Um, with this one, it kind of matters to let my guests speak because some of the implications of these need some careful explaining, some of the sort of setup and the context that you need to understand the implications and the, the power of uh, these, these flicks of a switch in history end up requiring careful explanation. So my guests are just going to hold court for as long as they need to make the case for their respective what-ifs, and then we're just going to discuss them, you know, pull up a Pull yourself up a pint, sit back, or a gin and tonic, depends what you prefer. Um, other beverages are, of course, available. Um, and and enjoy. It's it's going to be a an interesting, if ever so slightly mind-bending session. I think we will start with Charles. All right. Um, <clears throat> to your question, Zach, I posited what would have happened if early in Napoleon's relationship with Josephine, she had somehow, perhaps miraculously, uh, produced a healthy male heir. You can and see then... why I like this one, people. You can see straight <laughs> away why I like this one. And then kind of what might have happened extending from that. Now, it, it 
it likely of all of the ones we're likely to hear, and I don't know what the other two have to say, so I'm 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 sitting on pins and needles to hear what they have to say as well. This one might seem so, as far fetched as as they come. Uh, you know, Josephine was or Rose, if you prefer, the pre-Napoleon uh, person. Uh, was 32 at the time of their marriage. She had had Hortense when she was 20, which was her last child. So it had been a long time since uh, you know she had had any kids. Uh, and of course, she never produced any children after after Hortense. So, you know, I think the likelihood of that is is pretty remote. Uh, but what would have happened if in 1796, 1797, perhaps we have a healthy, bouncing baby Bonaparte boy? Um, and you can imagine, uh, you know, it, it questions if, if I think Napoleon was always plagued in the back of his mind about legitimacy and he had seized the throne through force uh, even his planned coup went awry that ended up uh, you know resulting in force uh, you know you read all kinds of things about in 1800 he's you know he's paranoid that he's got to win this battle at Marengo because it's through force that he secured his arms um, you know he creates the empire in 1804 to get some legitimacy uh, because at this point he's not going to have an heir, so unless he divorces Josephine. Editor's note: We get to that point, right? Um, so there's a lot of that going on, and you know, if he had had an, an heir with Josephine, imagine what uh, the after the war with Austria in 1809 would have looked. We wouldn't have had any of the the negotiations with the Russian Tsar uh, to marry into the. Romanov family, we wouldn't have had the, the you know, the Austrian princess, Marie Louise. So I it just, I thought, well, wouldn't that have been interesting to see what that would have looked like? So that's where I went with that one, Zach. It's a fun one to play with, isn't it? Um, the immediate thing that occurs to me is to what extent does fatherhood mellow Napoleon? And of course, we can start to answer that question because we can start to look at what does happen when uh, he and Marie-Louise do have a child. Um, but Napoleon sort of changing much earlier, because the, the point that Rachel made really nicely in a recent um, Marshall's episode, when we looked at the Marshall's wives and, and uh, included Josephine within that, was the fact that it's Josephine that sort of takes Napoleon and makes him palatable to society. Um, and to what extent is that possible when the two of them have a child? Um, but equally, to what extent does a child then accelerate that process in terms of changing the mindset? Uh, as you say, a lot of the paranoia suddenly goes out the window. And how does that have implications when it comes to the the diplomacy again as you as you've outlined here not not only when you get to 1809 but much earlier than that when you're sort of um looking at, at the i guess the, the birth of the empire and and this sense that you are creating a dynasty and how do the european nations then respond to that does the fact that Napoleon already has a line of descent suddenly mean that they approach him, I don't know, more favorably, more kindly, 
um, as opposed to somebody who's trying to marry his way in, you sort of look at this as a new dynasty that has a, a line of succession of its own. I, I don't really know the answer to any of these questions. Um, well, I don't think I, anyone does. That's why we're having a drink at the pub to talk about it, right? <laughs> exactly. This is the fun of it. Um, but I, I don't know if any of the others um, have some thoughts on those pointless ramblings that I've just uttered, um, but also the the merits of this one. Candice, thought, do you want to go first? Yeah, the thought that I had on it was all of the jockeying uh, for position in the line of succession that his siblings did, uh, which it, it's almost comical when you would look back and re realize that this wasn't the thing that was going to happen anyway, but they expended an extraordinary amount of energy and time trying to be named uh, as his heir. And that obviously would have gone out the window very quickly if he had had uh, a son of his own. And also I have I have read, and I don't know how accurate it is, that Napoleon himself thought that one of the reasons that England was continuing to wage war was because he did not have a son and they thought they could just wait him out. And he had this idea that if he had a son, that they would give up. And so I don't know if that idea he had, how realistic it was, but it was definitely something that he uh, that influenced his thinking. I mean, this is a really good point, right? The, the fact that there isn't an obvious successor does give this sort of impression of fragility. You know, all it takes is a cannonball kind of mentality. And suddenly France is without a leader. It descends back into anarchy. And then, of course, for the other European powers, not least Britain, that anarchy is something that can be exploited. Um, I guess the other question is the plebiscites. If Napoleon goes into the 1804 plebiscite with an heir, do we think, and I don't, I haven't got a clue what the answer to this is, but do we think that there's a chance there would have been more disquiet? You know, this, this sort of sense that, well, this, this looks awfully like a, uh, a king in another name because we, we make him emperor and then he's got this son so are we just having monarchy in a, in a different name? Is that, I, I don't know. I genuinely do not know. And I'm I'm keen to get your thoughts on this. Um, but I, I do wonder if that would then have an influence on the outcome of the plebiscite. I mean, in, in my view, it would have just strengthened his case because the entire case he put forward for becoming an emperor rather than just first consul for life is the hereditary principle. So after an assassination attempt, he says, no, we need an empire. We need someone who can be hereditary for stability. We can't just have you know, me being an inch away from death and France falling into anarchy. Uh, and he names Louis, his, his younger brother Louis's son, as his heir, um, to start with, at least. Um, so, no, he, he's got an heir in place, not his, but he's, he's got one of his blood. Of course, Louis is married to Josephine's daughter which strengthens this kind of Bonapartist clan. Um, and so kind of 1804, I, I think it kind of strengthens his case if he's got an heir, especially, like you said, if he had it in, in 1796, 97, the uh, already seven or eight years old, uh, I know people thinking, well, if Napoleon just lasts another eight to 10 years, we don't need a regency. Um, you know, I think it kind of strengthens his case. Um, I thought it was really fascinating, though, what you said about the, the psychology and the psychological change that might have occurred with Napoleon. 
because uh, at the start of his career, he's a risk taker. You know, his, his great victories, he takes risks. Uh, he, I'm not saying he doesn't care for his personal safety, but he puts that on the line. He takes big risks. Does that change if he's a father? I, I don't know. Uh, does he even go to Egypt if he's a father? Um, would he want to be away from his family rather than just Josephine for that long? Um, also, the the idea that he has now would have kind of secured his his masculinity almost. Um, it's, it's 1807. He has his first illegitimate child. Um, I don't quite recall. Um, but until then, he's not sure if it's him or Josephine, essentially. You know, he doesn't know if it's him that is the problem here. And I always get a sense that he feels that he needs to make up for that in some way and prove himself. Um, and so having a child immediately after marriage might have changed that entire mindset. Uh, so, you know, we might be sitting here talking about the the Bernadottian era as Bernadotte became the emperor of France and Napoleon was just one of his generals. Um, so I, I think this is a really fascinating <laughs> what if from, from a number of angles. I think we need to tell the barkeep to cut that guy off. <laughs> Um, I, I am sort of, I, I love the psychological angle, not only because, of course, nobody can be right or wrong, but uh, you know, I, uh, Napoleon gets maligned as a monster a lot, but at least in his familiar relations, I mean, he loved Josephine. And even after her infidelities were disclosed, and I mean, he was, I mean, crushed, destroyed. Those letters back from Egypt are just painful to read. Well, they're almost as painful as the love letters that he wrote to her in Italy, which were Oh, there are pieces. Yeah, all right, I won't go there. But at any rate, um, he really, really cared for Josephine. And I think she, as the years went on, kind of came around to him uh, a little bit more. And he genuinely cared for Marie Louise. And I, I think he liked family life. And I think he liked a docile and tranquil uh, family life, which wasn't always the case with the Bonapartes. So, Zach, when you bring up the mellowing, I mean, that's not an angle that I had considered. Um, but, I mean, I think that's worth some mulling for sure. I mean, this is literally the fun of these conversations, isn't it? That we all sort of yeah. bring our different perspectives and immediate thoughts on it. Yeah, you make a, a really good point that he's he's big on his family um, all the way through his life. Even when he comes back in 1815, right, he's desperate to, he's writing to, Marie-Louise kind of going, look, I want to see my son, please. Um, it's possibly the most contrite I can think of him being at any moment in time. Um, but granted, that is off the top of my head. So apologies if I've missed an obvious example there. Um, but it's not hard to imagine him doting on a son and and the implications there i think it's also really interesting what candy said about the jockeying because suddenly there would be another layer to the jockeying wouldn't there in that well we want to try and find a way to establish a link to the successor the succession line right and so all of the maneuvering to try and find a suitable marriage in the long term to whatever said child is called um let's call it napoleon the mini um right now um so uh, you know all of the 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 challenges that that then presents because for somebody like um napoleon's sister 
Well, that's that's a that's a challenge right there in terms she's of. She's not terribly bright though, so I don't know if an know, additional but... layer would have made that much difference. <laughs> no, this is true, but I'm kind of thinking, you know, if she was, you can just sort of imagine people trying to be inventive about how they managed to find a way to marry a daughter into this this Bonapartist line, right? Um, and and the fallings out that would have happened in the process, not that there aren't enough of them uh, as it is with the Bonapartes, but the fallings out that would have happened because for the siblings, that's that's almost the end of the story for them, yeah. isn't it? You know, you, you can't, it's, it's consanguinity. You, you can't marry into the back into the line. Um, well, imagine, if you will, if we'd had that, you know, that, that, magical baby he would have been 10 at about 1807 so if you take the normal progression that you know austria is beaten and then Prussia's destroyed and then there's friedland at that point he's 10 what kind of discussions happen on a global scale about who gets to marry the bonaparte prince that might have been interesting oh this is fun i'm enjoying this already um candice let me get your take on this on who would marry the son yeah uh, few years uh, off he's only 10 but you got to start to talk <laughs> right it's gonna be you gotta have the conversations you know these yeah. these things these things take time that's one part. aspect of it i hadn't actually thought about it because that would give him um more legitimacy than uh perhaps than than marie louise i don't i don't know though the 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 various uh, dynasties were very ready to throw away a princess. I mean, look at the one that they sent to marry the the uh, in Byzantium, and she ended up with uh, uh, some sort of uh, pirate captain or something because they know they made no effort to get her back. So, so I don't know if if that really had a long a long term effect or not. It's an well, imagine Anna Pavlova from Russia. If she's too young for Napoleon, is she? too old then for you know napoleon jr oh this, this is fun yeah this is fun <laughs> um, but you can imagine the marshals particularly jockeying for position um yeah. i, I think again, napoleon would have gone i think he would have wanted a, 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 a marriage amongst the the heads of you know state somewhere else i, I don't think he would have let davu's daughter you know marry marry him but there's also the question, is that more palatable for the other European powers? Because suddenly it's not the inverted commas Corsican upstart that they're having to marry their family to. It's the the heir to this sort of emerging dynasty, right? And and that's easier, that, that's less of a bitter pill to swallow. Um, and, and as you're kind of saying, you know, that that's something that you can start to contemplate you take a sort of not necessarily the first daughter but sort of a second or a third daughter and you start to weave those connections and again it establishes more legitimacy and i suppose in turn perhaps a a, a slim degree of, of stability graham have you got you're nodding um sort of mm-hmm. thoughtfully Yes, I mean, you, you do wonder how far this stabilizes the regime in the latter years of the empire. Um, you know, a potential marriage in 1812-13 uh, wouldn't be out of the question. Um, so this is an extra diplomatic chip, but also 
when you have things like the Malay conspiracy, uh, you know, Napoleon's big bugbear here is that no one thinks to declare Napoleon II, who's one year old, as his his successor. And of course, no one thinks of that because no one wants to, to talk about regencies and one-year-olds in charge. You've got a 16-year-old in Paris at the time, suddenly that changes. Um, I, I do think it, it would stabilize the regime, possibly give it more legitimacy. Um, you know, the, the marriage diplomatic chip is a an excellent point. I'm trying to wrap my brains over who they'd marry, but I'd, I'd guess a Habsburg or a Romanov to uh, to make those connections. Um, now, overall, I think this gives Napoleon a lot more options when he gets to 1812 onwards. Um, and also, if he does get hit by that putative cannonball, um, you know, France can then keep on with the empire. Whereas if that does happen in 1812 to 15, uh, you know, the empire collapses. Even though he's got a son, I don't see anyone um, continuing with the empire. Whether it would have made a difference in 1814, I mean, uh, you know, would they have let his son aged 18 or 17 take over in 1814? Probably not, but, you know, it would have been an option at least. Or, Grant, to follow on your uh, aggression, Napoleon, would Napoleon thought with one in the wings, would he have negotiated uh, rather than kept fighting? Just took natural frontiers and said, okay, I'm let stuff gel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in 1813, I don't think he was ever going to accept that because he's not been beaten in battle yet. He's, he's lost a campaign in Russia, but no one's ever beaten him in battle apart from Aspen Essling, which is, right. you know, it, it's not a decisive defeat. It's him trying to cross a river and the Austrians can't follow up. Um, so I, I do think in 1813, he's never going to give up. Um, That's fair. Particularly, but he might have then tried at the end of 1813 to negotiate more or possibly, uh, you know, there could have been an offer made to him well, how about you step aside and let your son take over who happens to be married to our daughter? Um, so, you know, the the allies might have had, or he might have been able to split the allies off differently. They might have had different bargaining chips. It's a really fascinating one. I do like this one. Yeah. Well, you got to wonder too, does, does Eugene stay in Italy? Does Louis stay in Holland? If you've got a, a, you know, kid that's 15 and, you know, can be shipped off with a, you know, advisor and a governor to, you know, kind of help, shape things you know i mean the other really impossible thing to throw into the mix is what if there's a coup based around the sun which which you can't know right you can't know the character of the child um you you can't have any kind of way of of answering that question but where you have this as you're kind of saying here graham you have this other option um it's not napoleon or nothing there's a a napoleon the small um that we we can turn to um does does said child actually become more than a political pawn that others can exploit and uh, granted this is a bit of a stretch at sort of 16 17 but the the kid would have been trained for it probably by napoleon himself right in this is how you divide and conquer and this is how you try and make this work um does the kid become enough of a savvy player to then start to build its own sort of mini court in its own orbit and sphere of influence that creates any number of problems oh this oh, one's brilliant with, with fushi well, whispering one of you yeah got graham uh, first and, okay, and then charles it, yeah okay fushi whispering and one ear Teleron whispering in the other Clark willing to back the winner. Uh, you can see this 17-year-old kid 
know, going somewhere with this in 1813, 14. So, yeah, I'm liking this. But sorry, Charles. Well, we've all seen the letters from Napoleon to Eugene or his brothers and sisters. He's not especially charitable, especially when he thinks somebody is screwed up. Uh, you know, I got volumes on the correspondence, as you know, and none of it's flattering. So, you know, maybe the kid at that point just says, you know, I've had enough of this. And maybe that Talleyrand guy is right. Yeah, I I'm already starting to pity this um, imaginative child. Yeah, yeah genuinely. <laughs> you know, Paul, nobody wants to be in the middle of that tug of war, right? No. <laughs> Pouchet and Talleyrand. Um, yep. it's enough to tear anybody apart. Wow, that's that's a heck of a way to start. Um let's let's keep going. Let's just throw another really difficult one in the mix. And we're gonna stay with the family connection for this one. Candice, it's all yours. Well, when I first threw this, uh, what if uh, Napoleon had been an only child uh question out there I was thinking at the time that he probably would have been better off given all the trouble that he he had with his various siblings their uh, extravagance their incompetence their treachery <laughs> <laughs> but then the more I thought about it I thought well but if you get rid of if you wipe them off the sl uh, the slate then you have to also take them out of uh, the earlier part of his life and uh, that's first of all, it's going to change the personality of the man he became, and then it's also going to influence the um, the events surrounding his rise to power. Because in terms of his personality, you know, they like you said, they were an incredibly close family. He sacrificed a lot to uh, when he was uh, in his young teens, and his father died in his thirties. He he was you know, going without food, wearing shabby clothes in order to send money back to his his mother in Corsica, and he got a lot of suffered a lot of ridicule because of that. And, and it was a very it's a very tender age for the development of a man's uh, sense of who he is and his sensitivities. And so I I'm sure that played a part in in his uh, added the attitudes of the man that he grew up to be, uh, but also. Then there's the 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 second part of that, which is the role that they played in his coming to power. And obviously, there are arguments that can be said, well, they they were or they were not that uh, important. But uh, Lucian was uh, the president of the Council of Five Hundred, and he he did play an important part in keeping Sayez and Talleyrand and uh, Fouché on board with the whole thing. And and also Napoleon strikes me as having been very nervous about the the whole uh, coup d'etat of the 18th Brumaire. And so would he have actually even have tried it without Joseph there in the Council of the um, Council of Ancients and without Lucian there backing him up? And then he also had the three generals who were, they were not uh, blood relations, but they had married into the Bonaparte clan. And that was, that was important as far as they were concerned. So you had Bernadotte, you had... Uh, Leclerc, you have Marat, they all played a part. So, so if you get if you make him an only child, would we have ever even heard of Napoleon Bonaparte? Because maybe that, you know, so few people would have heard of him as a general, but most people would not know him because that whole coup d'etat would never have taken place. And uh, it's, it's, 
It's funny that he is the only one who was really given uh, military training out of the five brothers. Uh, he tried to educate Louis himself, but then Louis, of course, had all those physical problems. So he really could not become a soldier himself. But despite the fact that uh, the others had not been given that kind of training, he tried to to use his brother. I mean, Joseph, we all know the disaster he was in uh, Spain. Uh, and Jerome was, he was only 20 when, when Napoleon stuck him in this and invented the kingdom of Westphalia for him. He had no training. Uh, and Lucian just got mad and went off because they, they argued too much about well, who he was or wasn't going to marry. And then the, the sisters uh, were really a, a, a mixed bunch. They were, the, they were interested in spending money and having sex and and uh, had seemed to have very poor choices and husbands repeatedly. So, but he still relied on them. And and I, I think it was in I think it was in 1810 that Metternich tells us that uh, Metternich, excuse me, tells us that Napoleon supposedly said to him, if he had it to do over again, he would have just given his siblings palaces in Paris and a few million dollars to spend and. He wouldn't have given them realms because they didn't know how to rule. And so if that was 1810, but then even after all the disasters uh, that uh, that happened, he still uh, left uh, Joseph in, in charge of Paris. And so at the time, he he justified it by saying that, that Joseph was the only man who he could count on to protect the, the dynasty. And um, I think that that, really gets to the heart of this question, because if he hadn't had these siblings, however incompetent and treacherous they were, uh, who would he have relied upon? I mean, he had Eugene de Beauharnais, who was very loyal and very competent. But how many how many men like that were there? And, and in the, in the empire was so disjointed and so cobbled together, he needed help. So I guess what he really needed was competent siblings, which is what he didn't have. I love the layers of this one because as you outlined there, you know, you strip back one layer and then actually you have to go back a bit further. So that my immediate thought was, okay, so yeah, if he doesn't have siblings, how does he assert control over the empire? Because as I've said many times, that is the, the Bonapartist model. I can trust a blood relation ish, possibly maybe didn't always work out for him, but we'll, we'll park that idea. Um, but the the concept therefore doesn't work because he hasn't got that blood tie, which means it's purely about loyalty and, and trust, which isn't always a, a a good thing to put all of your chips into. Um, but then, as you say, actually, the point becomes more about does he ever get to that position where he's bemoaning a lack of siblings because the coup potentially goes horribly wrong um it, it as you said possibly never happens and then as you were sort of starting to talk about it i was thinking well hang on if he's the first son does he get packed off to military academy at all uh is he instead destined for some sort of i don't know quiet provincial life as as the sort of the heir to his father and therefore never does anything that we associate with Napoleon. 
and and completely gets forgotten. I know. I don't know. Maybe ends up being um, close to Paoli. Um, in and well, that's essentially Joseph's life, isn't it? I mean, he goes to law school. He goes to Rome. Follows in the footsteps of his father. But ultimately, if there's no Napoleon, he doesn't do anything. He just fades into obscurity. Exactly. Joseph actually went at first to be a priest. He was sent at the age of 10 to a seminary. And he, it wasn't until he was older, he dropped out and decided to become a, he wanted to be a lawyer, which is the, actually where he should have gone to in the beginning. So I don't know if he was sent to that seminary because at the time, that's what he wanted to do. Was was the father actually listening to the sons when they, when they said, when they chose their vocations? Uh, Obviously, Napoleon wanted to be a military man, but the uh, and I think didn't Lucian also study to be or was it? Yeah, Lucian, I think, studied to be a priest at first. And then he died in 89, I think it was. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's it's it becomes so complicated as all of these are, are complicated, but it's an incredibly complicated one. Um, but yeah, sort of Father Napoleon doesn't quite have the same ring to it somehow you know <laughs> graham let me bring you in on this one yeah it is a fascinating one because you've got the the events in his life such as you know, 1799 lucien saves him essentially uh you know he, he goes in and and uh rescues napoleon and then when it's all falling apart he's the one that stands up and says look if my brother is trying to attack the republic i will stab him through the heart myself uh, but he's not. I'm the president of the council. They're the ones who need to get rid of. So he, he kind of wins everyone over to, you know, going back Napoleon uh, as it's all falling apart. So in these moments, uh, you know, the, these siblings are, are crucial. Um, as rulers, um, I think they're all useless. Um, Eliza is, is the only one that does nothing useful, I suppose. Um and it, it's not through necessarily their own fault. Like Louis in Holland was trying to do his best for Holland, uh, which Napoleon was disgusted about because he wanted Louis to do the best for France. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily their fault. Joseph, the same. Um, jo no, Joseph, I think, is Napoleon's um, kind of trusted confidant in some ways. He probably doesn't confide in him as much in later years, but he trusts Joseph. He's a, a bit of a rock in his life, maybe. So I think he is useful to Napoleon. The others apart from Lucien's intervention in 1799, he could probably take or leave. Um, but you get the sense that Napoleon feels like he's a man against the world in some ways. He's risen so high. Uh, he is is breaking new ground. Who can he possibly rely on? You know, a handful of friends. Juno is probably amongst them at this time. Marmel, Murat. But the family is, is who he can rely on. Um, and, and I wonder how much that does give him strength. Um, on the other hand, had he just given them palaces and money and let them just go off and uh, fade into drunken obscurity, he might have been much better off because um, they don't really do him any favors uh, in, in helping his empire. Um, I mean, no, as we've said, he doesn't do himself any favors in how he treats them, um, let's be honest. Uh, but I also wonder if the empire itself would have even started without siblings. Because um, as we said, in, in 1804, um, he's arguing on the principle of a hereditary empire. So Josephine hasn't had a child for, for eight years with him at this stage. Um, I, people might be charitable and say, you know, they might still, but I think most people would have thought he's not having children with Josephine. So if he starts saying, you know, we need to do this for hereditary reasons, I think people start saying, well, hang on, you don't have any children. 
You don't have any brothers and sisters. No one has children here. There's no one you can pass the throne to. Eugene, maybe, uh, but he's very young at this stage. He's he's inexperienced. He's also not a blood relation. Um, would Napoleon have wanted him to be his, his heir? Um, so, you know, maybe we'd have just had Napoleon Bonaparte first consul for life um, until he could have bullied someone else into marrying him. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating one, this one. The other thing that that uh, we didn't touch on was the role that Pauline played in helping Napoleon to to come back for the hundred days. She was the only one who went and visited him in Elba. She helped get him the money, and then Caroline is is the one who got him the mistress who proved that Josephine was wrong because she'd been Josephine was going around Paris. I forget the rather crude joke she was making about Napoleon's inability to to father an heir, but. Uh, Caroline hated Josephine, and uh, she she was very instrumental in getting Napoleon the mistress that uh, enabled him to to see that yes he could beget an heir, and and that uh, started the ball rolling towards the divorce. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Boy, this is fantastic. It really is. Um, for me, it's the fact that we we never get there. Um, that's that's the big stickler. Um, because it becomes the root cause of all things, right? Um, I guess I don't know enough about the father and the mother, if I'm being honest. Although I don't think we do know a great deal about Napoleon's mother full stop. Um, please correct me if I'm talking nonsense there, but I don't know, is he, because Napo the thing about Napoleon is that he always comes across as very headstrong. I don't know if that's a product of him growing up with brothers or not, though. Um, but is Napoleon so headstrong that he would have had the the arguments with his dad to say, no, I'm going to military academy? to then kick the ball rolling? Well, the father died. He was still in his 30s. And and the mother, Madame Mère, she was actually a very powerful figure um, who comes in and out of the picture in the end. She, I mean, she managed to save a lot of money. And so when they all lost their kingdoms and principalities and duchies, a bunch of them moved to Rome to, to batten off of her. And she outlived uh, Napoleon. Um, so... He, uh, he, he, you know, he's one of those things that that uh, one hates to diagnose backwards. But having someone who's who's on the spectrum, myself looking at Napoleon, I've often wondered if if he wasn't a lot of his characteristics 
suggest that he might have been. I don't see it in any of his siblings, particularly. They all they seem, with the exception of Lisa, they seem quite different from him. Yeah, I think Napoleon's early life um, is kind of shaped by the the political context of Corsica as well. His father initially resisting the French takeover, but then reconciling himself to it, and then desperately trying to to get connections with France, basically to to boost himself and his family's future. Uh, and the reason I think that Joseph and Napoleon are both sent to France is is because they are given an opportunity, um, basically to be educated as French noblemen. Um, Napoleon uh, is offered his place at the military academy, um, Joseph at the seminary, um, through the intervention of, um, I think it's the, the French governor of Corsica, who, who Napoleon's father befriends, um, who kind of pulls the strings. And, um, and this is a kind of way for social advancement that the two of them are sent off. I suspect if Napoleon had been an only child, he'd have still been sent off to France as part of this advancement, um, whether the military academy or, or seminary, I, I couldn't say. Whether his views would have been taken into account, I shouldn't have thought so at all. Um, at eight to 10 years old, uh, you know, his, his father's not going to be listening to him. He, he didn't seem to want to go to France. He didn't speak French. He was a Corsican. Um, he didn't like France. It was strange. It was cold. Uh, the people spoke funny languages, ate funny food. He, he wasn't a big fan. Um, if he'd have had a say, I, I imagine he'd have gone back to Corsica anyway. Uh, as an only child, though, I still see him being sent out there. Um, whether he'd have had the you know, quite the same experience, you know, his, his family could have probably afforded more for him. He'd have probably had a more comfortable existence, possibly assimilated more. I don't know. Um, but it, it, it's a an interesting idea, though, that you know, as a young artillery officer, he is still sending money back to Corsica. Uh, you know, if he'd have been able to afford better clothes, to eat more, uh, to make more of a social scene, would he have actually gone into the infantry or the cavalry? Would he have, uh, you know, been a, a different personality as an only child uh, in those early years? Would he have supported the revolution? Would he have become an emigre? Would he have deserted to the British? Um, a whole raft of what ifs there that other people can discuss. But um, now having those those siblings, I think, uh, you know, as you've all said, uh, really does shape his his path in life in such a, a distinctive way. It's really difficult to unpick, but it's a, a fascinating question. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do the last one um, for for this round. Graham, you're up. Take it away. Uh, me again. Sorry. Um, so th this is moving away from the the Bonaparte clan slightly. Um, to say, what if Napoleon didn't invade Russia in 1812? Um, now, this is probably the most widely accepted cause of Napoleon's downfall, uh, this, this invasion of Russia in 1812, uh, and the ensuing catastrophic loss of experienced men, trained horses, artillery and baggage, the alienation of his key allies in Prussia and Austria, uh, and also the growing loss of confidence of everyone in, in Napoleon's judgment and abilities. Um, you know, sure, the empire doesn't collapse immediately, um, but he, he's fatally hamstrung by the Russian campaign, essentially. So what might have been different if he hadn't invaded Russia? What might he have done instead? And how would Europe and, and the world have been different from it? Um, to start with, I think we, we need to dig into a little of the why of the invasion. So what issue is Napoleon trying to solve with the 600-odd thousand-man army? Uh, and could he have solved it in any other way? Um, the reasons for the invasion are are really complex, but I'll try to boil them down into a, a few basics. But, but 
I mean, basically what we're seeing is Russia drifting away from the French alliance that they had agreed in 1807 and reformulated in 1808, and Napoleon's wanting to drag them back, kicking and screaming into his orbit. Now, even within a year of their peace of 1807, Russia had begun to feel that Napoleon's being a bit too high-handed. Um, his repeated and, and major unilateral transfers of power uh, and of territory as well in Iberia, in Italy, and in Germany show for, for Tsar Alexander an utter lack of moderation on Napoleon's part. The dispossessing of the Tsar's brother-in-law, the Duke of Oldenburg, uh, in 1811 was a particular insult. Uh, and of course, there's the problems of the, the breakdown of negotiations for a Russian bride when Napoleon picks an Austrian one instead. Uh, and Russia also heartily resents the the economic blockade that Napoleon imposes. Um, they do kind of go back to the continental blockade in 1812 on Napoleon's insistence, but they despise the wider system and especially the system of French tariffs um, that, that are really uh, trying to make Russia a captive market. So it's clear that by 1811, Alexander does not want to stay in Napoleon's orbit. He is spoiling for war to an extent. Uh, he's making peace with Sweden and the Ottomans. He's rebuilding his army. He's um, not quite fully mobilizing, but he is building up an army on the frontier. So it looks like a conflict is coming. And for Napoleon, this is a potential threat to the Duchy of Warsaw. Uh, it's a distinct threat to his attempts to isolate Britain. And so from his point of view, this invasion is just him getting his retaliation in first. Now, he's, he's given the Russians a kick before they can do anything to him. So he's going to preempt this Russian foray westward. Uh, he's going to defeat Alexander on his own soil. And he's going to prove once and for all that no continental power can rival France. So could he have done anything different apart from invade Russia? Um, well, an option that perhaps fits most with his personality is that he could have prepared for war, but allowed Russia to take the first steps and bring the fight to him. It's unlikely that Alexander would have actually invaded in 1812, but he might have done in 1813 or 14. And Napoleon could have sat on the defensive. And I've, I've got no doubt whatsoever that with an army of a quarter of a million men, Napoleon could have held his frontier and defeated a Russian invasion. Um, he's barely lost a battle in his career by this stage. He doesn't lose a battle in Russia pretty much. Um, he's mostly successful on the battlefield. Um, and in 1813, he is successful in several battles. Now, this man can still fight. Um, and he'd have had time to improve his communications, stockpile resources. So I, I think he'd have won against the Russians in 1812. Um, but the outcome of this isn't really certain. So even if he destroyed Russia's army, uh, he could do nothing to impose his will on Russia without actually invading. Uh, and given that the Russian court is anti-French at this point, Alexander isn't risking much, even in another defeat in invading Poland. So Russia, really, for, for Napoleon, is a hard one to crack without invading. Um, there's not much diplomatic pressure he can exert, and anything he does against Russia otherwise simply pushes them to more, more towards Britain, which strengthens the position of both Russia and Britain if they're in alliance. So maybe if he doesn't invade Russia in 1812, sits on the defensive, he gets a short-term success, but really there's no lasting improvement of his strategic position. His army is stronger and better quality in 1813, but he's still faced with probably a war of attrition on two fronts now in the Iberia and then on the Eastern Front, as Russia simply withdraws after their defeat. Um, and to impose his will on Russia, he is probably going to have to invade in any case. In 1813, 14, 15, he is probably going to have to beat the Russians on their own soil to, to impose his will. So for me, the bigger counterfactual here is not how does he win the war on the Eastern Front in 1812, 13, 14, 
the bigger counterfactual is what if he tries to avoid war entirely? Now, here I am entering the realms of speculation, um, and it doesn't necessarily fit with what we know of Napoleon's personality and attitudes. Uh, but let's say for the sake of argument, he undergoes some kind of radical mellowing around New Year of 1812. I uh, you know maybe the birth of, uh, of his son in 1811 helps. Uh, maybe he gets a, a knock on the head out hunting. Who knows? But uh, he has a sudden revelation that his legacy is best secured by peace, not war. So instead of hurling his efforts into conquering Russia or beating them on their own soil, he decides to make a grand gesture of general pacification in Europe. What's stopping him then? Well, of course, Britain's the biggest roadblock. They don't want peace with a dominant France. Um, and they probably wouldn't come to the table unless there was something major on offer. But all of the other powers, even Russia, I think, would be willing to talk, especially if Napoleon started to offer concessions. Um, and he could have offered a lot less here than was ever demanded of him from 1813 onwards and gained a general peace. So instead of war, we get a Congress, the second Congress of Erfurt, let's say, uh, following on from the one in 1808, but much grander. So basically the Congress of Vienna, but Napoleon is the host. Now, Napoleon's naturally going to have to give a few things up, but really not that much. He could have guaranteed the independence of things like Portugal and Sicily. Uh, he could have promised never to join with his relatives' kingdoms in Spain and Naples and Westphalia, you know, pretty much like Louis XIV had to do. Um, with the, the War of Spanish Succession, um, he could have made it clear that he was willing to compensate other rulers. So Ferdinand of Spain set free and given the Spanish Empire to rule, uh, as in the overseas parts of the Spanish Empire, or possibly given lands in Italy. The Grand Duke of Oldenburg, married to the Tsar's favorite sister, of course, he could have been compensated. Um, for example, he could have been given the title of Stadtholder of the recently annexed Netherlands, which was in any case until 1812 being run as a separate part of the French Empire, so could easily have been detached and given to a new ruler. And that incidentally would have placated Britain, who didn't want the Low Countries in French hands. Austria and Prussia could be bought off maybe with land, more likely with a bit more influence in Germany. So a bigger role in the Confederation of the Rhine. Napoleon keeps the hereditary protectorship, for example, but they get rotational presidency of the Diet. Let's just give an example. Um, he'd have probably had to drop the continental system and French tariffs. He'd have probably had to guarantee Russia's Polish possessions uh, and you know, dash the hopes of the people of the Duchy of Warsaw that they might become a, a kingdom again. Um, probably another couple of territorial concessions here and there. But basically, he could have crafted a Europe of states beholden to him um, through this, this series of treaties, content with their lot, uh, and bound by a mutual balance rather than by pure fear. Now, could he have got Britain to sign up to this? Because without Britain, this, this general peace falls apart. I don't think that's impossible in 1812. In June of 1812, Britain is reeling from the assassination of a prime minister. They've just gone to war with the United States. Lord Liverpool's administration is not expected to see out the year. Lord Liverpool is seen as an absolute non-entity by everyone. Um, now the, the king a few years earlier had called him utterly unfit for any position. Uh, he is seen as a stopgap. Uh, no one expects that that administration to last 15 years. Um, so Britain may well have, have bowed to a degree of pressure. Uh, and let's not forget, if Napoleon hasn't been withdrawing troops for the invasion of Russia, Wellington's morale-boosting sieges, the border fortresses don't happen, the victory at Salamanca doesn't happen, Britain's war effort isn't getting the, the great victories that they get. Um, now, 1811 is a year of a couple of minor victories, but nothing spectacular. Now, the, the liberation of Portugal, great, but nothing in Spain. 
1812, if Napoleon doesn't invade Russia, and if Napoleon instead calls a general congress of pacification and makes up his mind to give up some of his conquests, 1812 is the year that Napoleon secures his legacy. The grand pacification, the great statesman who gives as well as takes, um, he, of course, would have been at, at effort when Mali launches his conspiracy, but he's closer to home, the Imperial Guards at home. The Mali conspiracy falls down. Possibly people even, uh, it occurs to them to declare Napoleon II. It, it strengthens his, his regime. So overall, you know, Napoleon's looking in a good place. The long-term consequences of this, in, in my mind, would see France dominate Europe for a generation or more. Um, unlike post-Vienna, we'd see a pacification based on constitutionalism rather than conservatism, um, probably strengthened the hand of the authoritarian rulers, but also of the, the liberal classes who later go on to challenge those same rulers, uh, and probably dampening some of the revolutionary impulses we see from, from 1815 to 1848. Um, I doubt the peace would last long term. Uh, Russia and Austria probably seek expansion at the expense of the Ottomans. Uh, Britain and France are always concerned about that. Uh, Italy and probably later the German states probably seek a degree of independence from French control. But without the so-called War of Liberation, Germany does not unify in the same way at all. Uh, Italy probably doesn't unify beyond the north. Um, you know, the south would have remained separate. So 1812 is, is a chance for Napoleon to achieve real greatness, not through a conquest of Russia, not through taking a different road marching back, uh, but through a pacification of Europe that he leads. Um, do I believe he could have done it? Um, not unless he'd have changed his personality. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the, the counterfactual of what if he hadn't invaded Russia, I offer to you uh, a glittering example of a Europe at peace and Napoleon, the great statesman who made it happen. A home run of a pitch right there. Wow. Um, drop that mic. Graham, drop that mic. Uh, applause around the room, rightly so. I thought you were just going to go down the the apologies. I I was very predictable when I saw this and thought, yeah, so that changes Spain. It also um, means that uh, obviously whole Grand Army situation doesn't transpire. You know, he's still got the forces, um, so he probably wins the peninsula war maybe um or at least kicks the british out which therefore enables him to go to town with the, the spanish um and and probably succeed in, in mopping those up so that's where i was going with this not what you've just heard which is so much cleverer so much cleverer um i was i was struck by what you were saying when you started up because earlier today i recorded with alex mikabridzi and he was talking about the sort of this idea, does Napoleon need to go on the offensive? Um, if he defeats a Russian invasion, is there not scope for him to effectively reaffirm Tilsit? And I, I would agree with you, that's not the basis for a lasting peace. But with the, with the border wide open, because the Russian army's been defeated in napoleonic style does that create pressure does that destabilize the czar's position at all uh, or is the the anti-french sentiment so strong in court that actually it it changes relatively little and it's a, a difficult one i suppose to, to predict because would alexander have made peace in defeat 
uh, let's say he invades with everything he's got um, and is is absolutely crushed. Um, which it, I think by 1812 is a bit less likely. Napoleon's armies are ponderous. The roads are bad, uh, even better supplied and a better general, shall we say, if he doesn't put his brother in charge of half of the army, for example. Um, is he going to be able to crush the Russians? I mean, the, the army just isn't moving fast enough in Russia. That's one of its problems. Um, no, maybe he could have crushed them, though. But I, I don't think he'd have got the spectacular victory he'd have wanted to. He'd have probably ended up with a Borodino and a Wagram not with a, an Austerlitz and a Freeland. Um, but even say he, he achieves Austerlitz and Freeland again, um, why would Alexander make peace? Um, he might. Uh, you know, He might say, okay, we've been beaten. Uh, I don't want to be invaded. I fear that Napoleon's going to recreate the kingdom of Poland. He's going to liberate the serfs. I, I don't want any of this. I'll make peace. Or he might just say, St. Petersburg's a very nice place this time of year. I'll go back there. Come and get me if you can. Um, and then we're left with the same position that Napoleon's in in June of 1812 anyway, where he's got to go into Russia. So um, yeah, if if Alexander makes peace, then Napoleon can sit on the defensive. But I think that in 1812, Napoleon really wants to assert his dominance over Alexander. He's beaten him twice outside of Russia. And both times Alexander has simply gone home. Uh, no, the first time he literally just goes home, doesn't make peace. The second time he, he makes a you know, a, a piece that essentially sees him as an equal to, to Napoleon. Um, and I think Napoleon wants to show that they're not equals, that, that Napoleon has beaten him, he's beaten him on home soil, um, that he is the dominant one. Um, so I, I get the sense that Napoleon couldn't simply sit on the defensive, let Alexander come to him and gain anything strategically from that. Um, possibly he'd have got another Tilsit, but then three years after that, he might have had another war. Um, he couldn't have put more troops into the peninsula because he needs half a million men to garrison Germany and watch his eastern frontier. Um, so I think he's in a bad position if he doesn't do something in 1812 that's a bit more proactive. Um, having said that, I'm not Napoleon, so I'm not necessarily the, the grand strategist in the room, but um, that, that's just my sense. Well, you say that, but you had it all mapped out. Um, I think you should have... Somebody should have packed you up into a time machine and sent you back to just spend five minutes whispering in Napoleon's ear. But as you say, the the big problem here is is the personality of the man. Um, it's it's not entirely consistent with the. He likes to dictate his peace settlements, doesn't he? You know, he likes to to crush, to dominate, and then say sign this. And and sure, there's negotiation and give and take before people suddenly start shouting at me. But nonetheless, it's that position of dominance thing that's that's fundamental to his mindset. So the only problem with this is it requires Napoleon to not be Napoleon, as far as I can see. It's a very compelling one. And of course, the long-term implications, as you say, consolidates the, the Bonapartist dynasty. You don't have the latter stages of the war um, and all that that entails. I don't, as you say, I'm not sure if that brings stability to Europe in the longer term. Probably not. More of a sort of status quo of the the, the 18th century. Let me well, open it up if, to the others. Yeah, Charles. Yeah. What, what what if in the example that Graham has given, there there is a war, in fact, and Alexander gets dumped a third time? What's to say Alexander still gets to be Alexander? I mean, three crushing defeats. 
I think there starts to be some whispers at court. And imagine what the world would look like if Alexander was assassinated and then Russia is completely destabilized after Napoleon has this mythical third victory. I mean, that would be a lot of sleepless nights in Britain over that one. Yeah, this is a really good point. Um, <laughs> it's not as though um, there is a precedent during this period for that kind of thing in Russia. Uh, as... knows, you know? <laughs> My other thought um, that struck me just initially uh, with Graham's thing, I was just imagining if if Napoleon didn't attack, God, what must the quality of the Grand Armée have been like then in 1813 or 1814? Imagine a Boulogne-like experience in 1812 and 1813 and what that army might have looked like at that point. That, holy shnikes, that would have been... been and also, there, there's you get that extension of that ability to dominate don't you because suddenly because the 1812 and this apologies folks this is an obvious comment to make but because the 1812 army is still there there's this reserve of men that you can call upon that go into the 1813 army to then be able to be deployed elsewhere should napoleon wish to call them um and so that enables further projection um, there's no question that the Peninsula War is basically over in, in my mind. I mean, perhaps you guys disagree, but my sense is that without the invasion of Russia, the Peninsula War just probably peters out. Um, I'm not 100% convinced that um, you get some sort of glittering six-week campaign and, and suddenly you know the, everybody's thrown into the sea or crushed on a mountainside and, and all the rest of it. Um, but I, the, the only way that the Peninsula War works is because of the invasion for me. Um, well, just a really quick sidebar and piggybacking on my thing. Imagine there's an heir and Napoleon takes command of the French army in 1810 like he had intended instead of Marmont. And what does that look like? I mean, that's obviously a conversation for a whole other day. But imagine what that might look like. Yeah, if Napoleon gets there a week earlier than Marmont does Napoleon fights Fuente Don Euro and as Wellington himself said if Bonaparte had been there we'd have been toast Um, so so then you do get a crushing defeat of the British what's left reels back to the lines of Torres Vedras it probably doesn't stop along the way Um, and Lord knows what happens next but probably the clamouring to end this war and get the British troops out suddenly gains a whole lot more traction that's probably a conversation for another day this is true we've we've gone down a whole other what if haven't we um <laughs> yes i'm sorry um, i'm sorry I'm no sorry. not at all, not at all. yeah um i'm i'm still reeling from this one apologies i i am um candice have you got any any thoughts on this one well it, i have often wondered this as well not with any we're near that kind of coherence <laughs> because I wonder what would have happened with the nationalistic aspirations of, of the Italians or the, the Germans uh, um, and, and the Spaniards. Um, and the Poles. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. So you have all of these forces which had been given impetus by the French Revolution. You have the temporary elimination of the ancient monarchy and the control of the church 
Uh, so uh, the, the 1815 sort of clamped a temporary lid on that, but then they all blew up again uh, repeatedly. So, so it then it then it really becomes a huge what if. What kind of influence does does the um, any kind of a French piece rather than uh, the debacle in Russia? What, what kind of influence does that have on these these other places? I mean, West the Kingdom of Westphalia was was not going to survive. Um, so. Um, and and you had Caroline and Hubby down in in Naples with their grand ambitions to uh, create a unified Italy. Uh, it just seems like there were all these centrifugal forces that were going to tear it apart anyway. But it, obviously, it would have been in a very different way from from what happened uh, because of the, the the Russian invasion. It is an absolutely brilliant one. Um... I'm so blown away by it. I'm trying to think, are there any sort of awkward little questions that I can throw in the way of this to well, stop it? Just... We have that, that, yeah, imagine we have that settlement that Graham talked about where there's that kind of equilibrium. So the offset is, of course, Napoleon greenlights Russia, Russia to go back into the Ottoman Empire. But if Napoleon's got all this extra energy, you know, he was putting a lot of time and effort into the Illyrian provinces where, with Marmont. Imagine there could be, I mean, imagine what kind of conflict you know, the Balkans would have with Russia, France, and Austria uh, at that point. I mean, that would be a, a funky wrinkle uh, uh, as well. Yeah, that strikes me as a tough place to go campaigning, the Balkans. Um, I wouldn't fancy the odds, uh, even, even for somebody like Napoleon. Um, but it depends how he played it, I guess. Um, we well, were did offer to serve the Sultan a hundred million years ago. This is true. Um, but, <laughs> but I guess, you know, if we're envisaging a Napoleon that's sort of slightly less Napoleonic in, in character, then actually we're talking about somebody who perhaps is willing to do more than sort of divide and conquer, but actually sort of divide and rule. Uh, and, and I mean a sort of subtle difference there in that, you know, strike a few deals and, and maybe... Um, actually, the Balkans cam a Balkans campaign isn't quite as horrific as it immediately appears in my mind. I mean, well, if, imagine if we... that the Russians. Hang on, Graham. Let me make one point, and then I'll turn it over to you. Um, what if the Russians had done so well in the Balkans, green lighted by Napoleon, and the Russians get a full time warm water port? Graham, let me bring you yeah. in as well. Yeah. Yeah, we are kind of suggesting Napoleon has to not be Napoleon for a peace settlement. But if if he was the Napoleon that he pretended to be when he was on Saint Helena, for example, um, you know, he he likes to think of himself in this way. So maybe he could have been persuaded. Maybe a slight nudge to the head or, or whatever it might have been, uh, a whisper in the ear might have nudged him. Um, if he could have done that, I do still think he's got some energy for expansionism. The Balkans is the obvious place. Britain not going to be happy about that. Um, there's there's going to be issues there. Um, no, I don't think this this is going to be peace for a, a more than a generation. I think this is a peace uh, that would be a kind of 18th century peace rather than the the post Vienna peace. What what we don't have if we lose the war of 1812 or the the sorry the campaign of 1812 is half a million a million dead people that add impetus to the Vienna settlement to never make this happen again. Um, one of the key things they wanted at Vienna 
along with everything else, is just to make sure this does not happen again. This war was so horrendous. Um, and I, I think the war's bad enough, you know, in the, in the decade that we've got up to 1812, but I don't think we quite have that, that same impetus. I don't think we have the same forces being unleashed that they're desperate to put a lid on. And therefore, I think we don't have rulers with quite the same, um, quite the same impetus to, to not have wars in future. So, you know, maybe this is a 20-year peace, but Napoleon still is seen as the peacemaker. What he doesn't know at this stage is he's dead in nine years. Um, now that doesn't change by him not invading Russia. Um, perhaps his constitution is destroyed by this. Um, other men's are as well. Uh, maybe that is a contributory factor. Um, it's pure speculation because we, we don't know his medical history fully. But, um, you know, in, in a decade, he's not going to be there. Um, and I think in 1812, he could have made a peace that would have lasted his lifetime. What happened in 1821 when he died, when he's got a 10-year-old son who's meant to take over, uh, an empire to rule, Mura in Naples screaming for, for more land, his sisters plotting against him, his brothers being useless. What happens then is a very interesting question indeed. Um, one that I'm not going to delve into, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I do think Napoleon's... Yeah, we should order another me. round, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm genuinely sitting here thinking the way that we solve that problem is to go with Charles's what if. So if if we create this kind of fusion of, of what ifs uh, in this parallel universe where we're creating for ourselves, then we can solve that problem for you, Graham. So there's your answer. And, and Candice has, has done well to remove Caroline from the, the table as well. So we've got no problem in, in Naples here. So yeah. uh, I think we've just solved the Napoleonic Wars. I think they all three work. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> It's amazing what you can do over a few beers in a pub with a lot of hindsight. Um, I think that's probably a great point on which to end. What a hell of a first episode. This has been absolutely brilliant. I have loved having you all on. Um, I am going to do that sort of shameless publicity thing, people, and you will sit here and you will listen and you will enjoy this. And you will then go forth and follow these individuals on Twitter so that you can benefit from their wisdom and their good humour. And you're also going to buy their books, aren't you? Now, I can't force you to do that, but I strongly encourage you to do so. Um, but rather than it come from me, I'm going to be mean to my guests, I suppose, and ask them to sort of talk about their own work and, and um, give you not the sort of Hack sort of PR type job, but just get them to say a little bit about their works and um, where you can follow them and, and stay up to date with them. Because I think it's nicer when it comes from the individual sometimes. Graham, I'm going to start with you. Oh, thanks, Zach. This is the uh, the thanks we get for coming on the show. Um, so uh, you can find me on Twitter. That's probably the best place at Graham Callister, uh, Graham G R A E M E. Um, and uh, you'll find my, my normal ramblings there on uh, Napoleonic armies, uh, specifically the French army, which is related to my, my kind of current research uh, around the French army in the, the Waterloo campaign. So there'll be a forthcoming book uh, from Pen and Sword on that in nine months or so. Uh, I'll, I've got to write it at some point. Um, current books that are out, uh, one on, on battle uh, called Battle would you believe? Uh, battle, Understanding Conflict from Hastings to Helm and also, also with Pen and Sword and uh, one with, with Paul Grave, Macmillan, War, Public Opinion and Policy uh, in Britain, France and the Netherlands, 18, uh, 1785 to 1815. Um, I should probably know the title of my own book. Um, but yeah, uh, Twitter is probably the best place to find me. What I also find deeply impressive is that you can churn out sort of two or three books in a span of time where I've researched and failed to write one. Um, so nice work there. 
Um, sorry, I had a, a decade of researching and failing to write anything as well. So, you know, I've, I've done my time in that department. Okay, I'll, I'll take that as consolation. Um, Charles, I'm going to come to you next. Uh, well, if we're talking about decades and failing to write anything, I think I'm probably the poster child for that. So I got my PhD in 95, and uh, that guy still doesn't have a biography yet. Uh, <laughs> I, I have cleaning it up. I have some folks that have some interest. Uh, I think part of my challenge with Juno has been that um, he's a hard guy to write about because he's not a well, he's not a likable human being. Um, and he's a perennial screw up, uh, uh, but he's, I mean, unfailingly loyal to Napoleon. So the one thing Napoleon wants out of anybody, he's got in Juno. And Juno is a, just a perennial screw up. Um, jovial, kind hearted, and good natured, generally, real talent for getting dinged in the head with wounds. Um, but I, so I like the, and as I've gotten older, I've gotten more perspective uh, and, you know, I like the relationships and I like looking at the relationships and how they work and what this would, you know, how this would look and things. So he's been interesting through the decades now as he sits on my desk, mocking me unpublished, uh, but hopefully that'll, that'll change soon. Hey, if it makes you feel any better, I have a stack of um, six folders in a bookcase that just glare at me from across the room um, saying, why haven't you picked us up in a while? We're dusty. You're meant to be writing this book. So I, I empathize fully with you. You're also on Twitter as Bubbles the Vampire. Um, yeah, I, so... technically the address is Bubbles Vampire, but I call myself Bubbles the Vampire. Um people ask about that name all the time i uh my oldest son who's now in graduate school himself uh, at the academy working on art history wanted a name he came to me he was like 10 or 11 years old and he was playing dungeons and dragons with his buddies and he says dad i'm going to use a vampire but i don't i need a name but i don't want him to be too scary and i said well why don't you call him bubbles and so then that kind of became a family joke and so it took on a, a life of its own so that's that's where that name came from and now that is how the world know you i love it there you go. um there you go. candace you you have a another name that that isn't your own by origin of course um so they will find folks will find you on twitter as cs harris right yes that's what i write my um my most of not all of my fiction under cs harris and it's cs harris too i do have a I do have an actual history book, which I published long ago in my previous life. It's Women, Equality, and the French Revolution, which is published under Candace Proctor. We need to sit down and have a conversation about that. Um, that's that's a very interesting topic. Um, but say a bit more about your, your novels, which is your main line of work. Uh, yes, it, it's uh, the Sebastian St. Cyr Historical Mystery Series. It's set in the Regency period because that's my period, but it's not it's not the light sort of, it's not the light Regency period. It's the real dark, gritty Regency period. Um, I've got the last one is was that I just published just last week uh, is number 18. So I've been doing this for a while. Uh, so that's who cries. Who cries? Okay, 
Um, folks, the usual story, I will not only put the um, Twitter um, handles in the descriptor to the episode, I will also do links to where you can get the, the said books that we've talked about. Um, thank you all so much. What an episode. Um, I'm not going to say that we'll do this exactly again, but we need to sit down and, and have a another chat in this vein because, boy, what an absolute belter of an episode. So, Graham, Candice, Charles, thank you all so much for your time. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. Folks, if you're new here, remember to hit the subscribe button so that you can find your way back. If you're a fan of the period, you can immerse yourself in a Napoleonic Wars pod universe, full of exclusive bonus episodes, a Discord server to chat with the wider Napoleonic enthusiast community. Yes, there is one. There are a lovely bunch of people too. There are also socials, the chance to request episodes, and even a course dedicated to the period. Head over to Patreon, the link is in the description, to find out more. Much love to all of my Patreon supporters. Bear in mind that if you want to enjoy a specific perk from a tier, like joining the monthly online course that I run, you can now edit your pledge to secure individual perks rather than the whole perk package. Drop me a message via Patreon or Twitter for more details. Shoutouts to my mentioned in dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice de Graaf, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Alexandra Leon, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Colson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Miles Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramas, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, an anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Marcus Cribb, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, James Fluick, Natasha Hobday, Roger O'Donnell, Rod Schrager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, Ted Andrews, David Malinsky, and Stephen Gillen. The Admirals, David Priest, Rob Cotlin, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, Michael Guest, John Haynes, and Kate Walcombe. The Marshals, Ger Brown, Roy Muir, Bob Burnham, Matt Bone, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Stephen Ashworth, and Sean Sullivan. The Emperors, there are two of them now, Graham Swidenbank and JC Kaiser. And the Legion de Scholars. Dan Hazelwood, David Maxwell, Liam Telfer, and Todd and Laird Campbell. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars Pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.